Welcome to episode 25 of Coffee and Surfaces. Quarter of a century down. I'd make a joke about a cricket score there, but I don't really know anything about cricket, so I'm a bit stumped on that one. This week's episode is the third of those recorded at the track conference last month, with Miller Power joining me as our guest. Miller is just coming to the end of his MA at Durham and was presenting a poster at track on non-binary and intersex visibility in Roman London, looking at a burial from Harper Road as a case study. Naturally, we're talking about the poster and about Miller's work and activism more broadly in relation to LGBTQ and disability issues. Miller chats about how his own trans identity and autism came to inform his work after initially being hesitant to integrate these into his research, and how, if we want to change the minds of people on these issues, archaeology can play a very significant role. We also talk about the unplanned session Miller and track plenary lecture slash former guest of the podcast, Zena Kamash organised at the conference on marginalised identities in archaeology. Now, I've got to say, all the episodes I've recorded so far have been enjoyable and interesting, but this one rates as one of my favourites, because, as I'm sure you'll find listening to today's episode, Miller brings a really fresh perspective to archaeology, given his own experiences. With that in mind, anyone out there who feels underrepresented in archaeology or ancient history, please do get in contact with me if you'd like to come on the show and talk about your own journey. It'd be great to hear from you. And so, as always, thanks for joining me, and on to the show. Is this your first time at track? No, I went to the one in Durham in 2017. I was technically a student volunteer, but I shirked a lot of my responsibilities and just went to talks instead and I did networking, which I wasn't really meant to do, but that's all. (laughs) Yeah. How are you finding it this year then? Oh, yeah, really great. And, you know, better than last year because I don't have to keep running off and holding up the five minute signs and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, You can actually, like, pay attention. Yeah, and I found it really good for thinking about my own research because I don't go to lectures anymore because I'm just like writing up and I feel like I've got a very one track mind but having come in here you know I've had being able to talk to people and I've had like five different ideas for like things I'm doing and it's it's really helped because I've been in a bit of a writer's block and not really felt like I'm going anywhere but now I feel a bit more refreshed so yeah I'm a good fan. <laughs> yeah it's good I, I suppose in some respects Perhaps sometimes the downside of track, it's not really a downside, it's just, it's almost overstimulation, I guess, because sometimes mm. you get too many ideas walking away from it. That's course. true, there's like, there's too many things I need to do, and I'm almost glad that I'm not even on the standing committee for the next three years, because I've already just thought of like a million other things I want to do, and yeah, you've got to pick what you actually do do. Yeah, <laughs> and also as well, I feel like the, when you go to conferences like this, I think, I like to think the track is quite a welcoming conference. Yeah, uh, a lot of people here are quite nice, and, and you go away kind of feeling energised as part of the archaeological Roman archaeological community, and want to I don't know, yeah, it just kind of gives you a positive sense going back into your own work. Ask me here in a few weeks, and I was just like, <laughs> oh, I sat on my laptop, just like, what am I writing? But the initial kind of bounce you have afterwards, you're like yeah. springing away, and you're like, yes. Yeah, I definitely um, get that. You'd like re-energized whenever you go to like any conference I feel like but especially when it's this friendly you're like yeah and I've got connections now and they're gonna help me with this and this and then you know two weeks later you're like oh sleep <laughs> yeah. yeah so you're you've 
had a poster. Can you just talk me through what the what the poster is about? Yeah, so it was um, non-binary and intersex people in Roman Britain using the case study of the Harper Road burial in London. Uh, originally gendered as a woman when it was first excavated and written up by Cotton, I can't remember what year it was, because of a mirror, bur- a mirror in the burial. But um, uh, it was then ADNA sexed by Rebecca Redfern, who did the talk earlier, and she found that the DNA came out as male. And when I read this paper, I was very sort of conflicted. Um, I didn't think it like looked at it in the right way because obviously she's like oh well this is male but I still think this person was a woman because of the mirror but then if you read other research I can't remember who did it but someone looked at all the mirror burials and found that there wasn't really a gender alignment except for like in Yorkshire where they have quite weird Iron Age burials don't they so yeah I wanted to look at this case study and talk about sort of the way we ignore uh, intersex people even though they are um, as common as ginger people DNA wise um, how we assume that sex and ADNA is the the end point, you know, like once we've done that, we know who this person is, when really that's not true, because, you know, you can have um, XX in your chromosomes and still have conflicting, or, you know, what we think are conflicting genitals and uh, body shape, because the half-a-road woman is still very, or half-a-road person, has like the bone structure of a woman, which is another reason why uh, they were gendered as a, a woman originally because they've got like the smaller head and the big hips. So we don't know what really they, um, their sex was or and if they were intersex or anything. So my poster was looking at this, looking at the grave goods and critiquing what previous people, mostly Cotton and Redfern, had said about um, the grave goods and the, the bones. But I mostly concentrate on the grave goods because I'm not really um, costume archaeologist. And critiquing what they said, uh, basically saying, well, these, we can't really use these as conclusions. I mean, they're definitely ideas, but also I can find quite a lot of problems with these ideas, and it's really something we need to look into further by looking at texts, looking at other burials, looking at, you know, everything again, because um, we're set in the old ways of, like, male-dominated archaeology. I think we need to just, like, stop thinking even if we think we're not thinking in that way anymore because we've changed, sort of take ourselves out of that and think, rethink lots of things that um, we think are closed cases. Mm. Absolutely, I think that's the right way of going about it as well. As you say, I think sometimes we we like to think that we've progressed beyond a certain stage and that we understand everything better now, but in many cases we've taken a few steps forwards, but we've not got to the end of the road, if that makes sense. Like, you know, it's, it's very much... Uh, an evolving discipline that's going to change over time and I think the better way of thinking about it is to feel like we are progressing rather mm-hmm. than we have progressed if that makes sense it's yeah. not like we've not reached the end of the road no we're actually kind of actually still kind of very much on the journey at the moment so you were you just did uh, on conference session as well yes, correct? yeah so, I was running it with uh, Zena who gave a plenary speech yeah we did it on yeah identity and things that are marginalized in our research so things that aren't researched uh, we did a bit of talking about menstruation and how that's not really researched, even though it, it, it does come up. Okay. In, just, um, just very, very quick note. I don't know if she was there or if you met her at Crypto uh, lecturer here, Adam Fosey. She has just published her thesis. The title of it was Becoming a Woman and a Mother in Greco-Roman Egypt. 
uh, even though she looked at uh, Egypt in the Pharaonic period as well, but she looked at all those kind of issues like menstruation and kind of coming of age in women, oh, like yeah. these kind of ideas that hadn't really been looked at before at all. But yeah, just as a kind of side note, yeah. I don't know, are you going to the party later? Or yes, yes. If she's around at all, then it should be good to talk to. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see yeah, her, I'm trying to introduce, but yeah, no, I'm just touching on that because yeah. she's been working on it for a while, so... But, Sorry, um, I, I kind of interrupted. Yeah, but that, that person who just came in, who I can never remember the name of, uh, she's also done some papers on menstruation and uh, other people were talking about how we always talk about puberty and not the menopause, so that was really good. Uh, so it was concentrating on things that are not being said because we're not sort of starting anew, if that makes sense. Like, sort of carrying on from the old sort of ways um, and saying that, you know, we're progressing, like you say, but um, we're progressing with that sort of behind us whereas you know sometimes you need to like take a fresh look at something and accept that you know you have you know your biases and it's mm. good for lots and lots of people to look at a thing and not be like competitive about this is my skeleton i talk about this and yeah that was basically what it was about um and we oh, we concluded with a very positive point that everyone has their own sort of little bit of power and influence where they can like do a tiny thing like write a paper on this you know something that's not normally written about and then suddenly you sort of attract more people to you because sometimes it feels like you're just attracting negativity but you also attract you know other researchers who are like oh that's interesting maybe we'll write a paper together and then they write a paper together and that's like multiplied and that's the kind of thing we talked about in the unconference yeah, so it's great I, was, yeah. I actually would like to have gone but I was doing yeah you were doing this so, yeah. unfortunately yeah but yeah i mean no hopefully in, in future we'll have have more of those discussions that will carry on through throughout track yeah i hope so agenda of broadening the horizon so you mentioned earlier your so you're writing up at the moment you're uh -huh. writing up your dissertation, dissertation for my masters yeah masters. Uh, so what, what's that about um yeah very similar to the poster but um more to do with reception so i don't know if you know the ancient identities project uh, richard hingley and chiara banaki and mm, yeah, yeah they, I, I use the paper they published uh, quite recently mm -hmm. on how the Iron Age Roman periods are presented in schools and on TV and stuff that was fascinating but yeah yeah, sorry yeah. yeah so I'm doing that sort of thing but with gender in Britain for this dissertation and using they Chiara especially uses like social media anal analyzing so um, looking at words people use together um, the way they talk about Romans in the context of race and I would do the same in the context of gender yeah and then I'm hoping to go on to do a PhD but and do a similar thing but in the wider empire not just Britain okay um, yeah but yeah particularly looking at reception I'm probably going to interview a few people about you know what they think of gender and what they think of the Roman class and if they think that you know non-binary is a new thing for example um yeah. well it's great I mean you, you know as I say it's it's broadening our horizons and bringing new angles into, mm -hmm. into it is what, what it's all about, really. God, if everything just stayed the same the whole time in the field, yeah. it would just get incredibly boring and incredibly static. And no, I think that's the thing. And I think it's important in regards to, I mean, this has been a discussion that's come up a number of times throughout the conference and um, where it comes up in general, I suppose, about, yeah. especially might say, the relevancy of archaeology and, and you know, why, why do we do it? And, you know, as you say, exploring these themes in particular that haven't been touched on before in regards to the past or understanding of the past i mean like you know those things were like there but we don't necessarily we don't talk about yeah, it yeah exactly and and you say i mean this is actually it's very interesting because i was in the unconference session about um nature mm -hmm. in the world 
and Jane Gate, who was in there talking about uh, climate change in the modern world and how the studies show that apparently with people that would identify as being quite conservative, that they don't tend to want to fund like climate change charities. Mm-hmm. But it depends on how you frame it, because if you talk about climate change as being something in the future, they're more sceptical about it. If you say that what you're trying to do is restore nature to a previous form yes. then they're actually suddenly a lot more interested and it's said like when it's communicated to them as something related to the past rather than the future if they feel like things are changing they're much more hesitant if you can explain to them that these things have existed for a long time and they're kind of part of history overall then they're suddenly actually much more receptive to what you're saying that is very true and it's something i was really trying to get across in the unconference that me and Zena did because people were like why would we bother making our archaeology sort of activism um and i was like yeah by saying something happened in the past people who are sort of set in their ways and small c conservative are very are more happy to like go along with it like you say oh oh, are we preserving old woodlands we're preserving the earth we've lived on for ages then they're like yeah but if you're like oh it's gonna get really hot in 20 years they're like not gonna be alive in 20 years mate yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah uh, unfortunately, that's true. It yeah. is kind of the way it is in many cases. Yeah, and especially with non-binary stuff, people are always like, oh, these young'uns coming in with their new ideas. But it's really not new ideas, because um, we know for definite that in Native American tribes, they had all different gender systems in the different tribes. And, um, you know, in other places that are, like, rarely studied and talked about, they have different gender systems to what we accept now in the West. And um, so, therefore, it is believable that in past cultures, there were different gender systems because they were different cultures and gender is just like another cultural construct, like, um, I don't know, well, race in some ways, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's that thing about, because some people think they're being very traditionalist, but how far does tradition go back? Because mm-hmm. sometimes those traditions only don't go actually that far back and the reality of what they're actually going up against and what they're arguing against is actually far older than they think it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's in, it's that kind of perception I think of you know some people will have these ideas in their head of what what is traditional or what's the proper way of doing things. But the proper way of doing things quite often I think usually tends to be much more recent than people imagine it to be. Yeah. Uh, I say proper way in like inverted yeah, commas, yeah, yeah. but you know what I mean. Like it's you know that's that's the the, the way that people in, interpret things that they they see things as being. You know, that's what I grew up with. And then they think what they grew up with and what their parents grew up with is the way that it's always been. And actually, if you go back a few generations, quite often things are going to be radically different, even when you go back to like the Victorian period, Uh things are going to be quite different to to what they are now. Yeah, and I think there was definitely different attitudes to gender even in the Victorian period, um, which is something I'd love to look into if I've ever got time. Yeah, and I think this is really perpetuated even by um, people who are trying to be queer archaeologists because there's like a there's the queer museum that uh, they're trying to open up in London, which is like an LGBT museum project, and they only talk about the last I don't know fifty years and like modern the modern sort of queer revolution and um, getting it more mainstream um, accepted. But I think that's it's not unhelpful because obviously it's good to know about these people and these activists and these people who did like really important things for our community. But it sort of really reinforces this idea that it's a new thing like no one was gay before 1920 you know mm. and that's just not true because we know you know there were gay greeks gay romans um gay, adrian 
Yeah. Gay Roman emperors, exactly. And, um, you know, arguments for transgender Roman emperors who, it was like maybe Elagabalus who asked uh, yeah. asked to have um, a doctor, would pay a doctor loads of money if they could make him into a woman. And, you know, but no one talks about that. And I think it really is perpetuated by the LGBT community, um, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. I mean, do you think as well, like, in terms of, say, for example, somebody like Hadrian, because I remember the British Museum had the uh, the exhibition uh, related to I can't remember what it's called now. Well, they had the well, they, they, well was it the exhibition? No, they have a book which is like is it a little gay history or something like that? Yeah. Or something like, do you think though is there is there a slight danger there sometimes of labelling say Hadrian as being like gay for example mm-hmm. because we don't know how he yeah. would have been. But I mean the the clear clear picture that we have of Hadrian is as with many people in the past is a higher degree of fluidity mm-hmm. when it comes to that and do you think sometimes like labeling that 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 idea sometimes i don't really know how to frame it but in terms of labeling people in the past as being straight or gay or whatever can be slightly misleading as well because of the fact that as i say that perhaps it's actually much more fluid mm-hmm. or almost certainly was much more fluid and do you think that's the kind of perhaps the message that should be yeah i totally agree with that labeling people in the past that we've never met as a thing that we have now is a problem and it's something I'm really trying to combat by talking about non-binary and intersex because really they probably wouldn't they wouldn't say non-binary they would have had a name for it and it wouldn't have been weird because they didn't have a binary you know um, and it's really trying to stop assuming that gender and sexuality is like I always get etic and emic mixed up but like a, an accepted thing that people meld and change and they're the people who are changing it but really it's just a set of Western ideals that we're p- implying to the past. So yeah, he might, well, they wouldn't have called it gay because that wasn't a word. Yeah, we don't know. And he might not have been like, oh, I am attracted to men. He might be, oh, I'm attracted to this thing that we don't know what it is. Um, and I think we really need to think about it fluidly. And um, yeah, not just like plonk our modern labels onto it because gay is a new word, but sleeping, men sleeping with men, not new. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you how did you get into studying the Roman world? What kind of led you down this path and to your kind of particular area of study? Yeah, I've had a bit of a weird path to it because I never thought I would be doing history or archaeology. My mother is a historian, but she only started being historian as a mature student because, um, well, she's not really from a working class background, but we became sort of working class through. Uh, you know circumstances so I've been brought up working class and I always thought I would try and do something important for the world like uh, physics or chemistry or whatever and that's what I really excelled in at school I was good at science but then when I got to a level I really found um, it difficult to sort of keep up especially as a disabled person because I have autism and uh, learning disabilities the keeping up with science it's not very accepting of people of differing abilities and then I decided, because I quite enjoyed like reading classical literature as like a hobby, I'd do classical civilization, and um, I also did psychology because that's sort of a link into science. And I think psychology and my psychological knowledge really feeds into the way I look at archaeology because ultimately it's just about people and psychology is about people and how they work. Yeah, and I completely flunked physics because I did that as well. And I completely flunked English because way too much spelling. <laughs> So yeah, I was sort of left with classics, and that was my best subject, and I, it was something I got really commended on by my teachers. They were like, oh, you really bring like 
new attitudes to this sort of custody um, custody old topic. Especially, I had a real support from. We had this really great sort of really old teacher called Mr. Machen. He'd been around for years and years. He was like, I don't know how old you are. I don't know. It just like he was like a myth to us. He's like <laughs> this amazing old guy who just like came in and he was like amazingly somehow like feminist and in, interested in new changes and new ways of thinking about classics, even though he was very classically trained. And I think he went to like Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember. Um, yeah, but he was like very supportive, and I think I was quite lucky to have that. So that really made me want to do classics. So because I didn't really know about archaeology in classics, because I was just being told about like this traditional reading the texts, analysing the texts kind of thing, and that's what I did. So I applied to classics at UNOS, um, quite a few universities, but got rejected because um, I didn't come from this sort of private school background. I hadn't done Latin. I hadn't had all this like years of training in this particular field. But thankfully, at Durham, they just started archaeology and archaeology and ancient civilization course, and they were looking for people to fill it in because no one was really coming into it. So they were like taking anyone who got rejected from classics, because especially because of these reasons of like sort of working class backgrounds. I know that's probably not intentionally what they're doing, but it sort of is because they just don't want people who haven't been trained in Latin. And I think now at Durham they do have a classics course for people who haven't been trained in Latin, which is good. But anyway, so they were taking these people and saying, "Oh, do you want to be?" On this course instead and I'm really lucky because I said yes and they let me on and um, yeah uh, that's how I got into archaeology in terms of getting into the more trying to look at things in a fresh way in a sort of in a way bringing activism into archaeology and what we look at uh, I kind of got into that by sort of noticing myself initially missing from past if that makes sense so um my undergrad dissertation was about um non-elite people in quotation marks um in roman britain and how they were treated because no one ever said anything about it to me and it was bloody difficult um <laughs> because it is just so hard to see them but um and it was like there is stuff written about it but not not that much um because mostly like military stuff and um, big cities that are written about and i found that and i started thinking about other things that were missing that weren't just like uh, working class poor people. For a bit I looked at race because uh, um, my um, master supervisor is Richard Hingley who's done this stuff on race with Chiara Banaki like I was saying. I've done a few things um, about race where I was looking. I did one where I looked at Victorian and Edwardian portraiture of and uh, depictions in art of Roman Britain and people of colour in there and how they were represented and what places and such. And also looking at the way white people were represented. And then, yeah, I moved on to gender because I realised it's okay to write about trans stuff because when I first started archaeology, I was sort of still coming to terms with my own um, trans identity. Um, so I was sort of like, no, you can't write about this. This is a very private thing. But now I realise that, you know, it's good to push that into yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, one of the things I found about even just doing the podcast is that one of the things we have in archaeology now is that it's becoming less male-dominated, I would mm -hmm. say, gradually. But even still, I still struggle to go beyond like finding guests for the podcast. Right. <laughs> go beyond the kind of, don't come from a background in terms of whether, I don't know how to frame my question, really. Mm. It's not even a question, it's a comment. 
basically, I want fresh voices on the podcast. Sure. And and I'm not saying everyone I've talked to has been great. Uh-huh. But I mean, I had this conversation with Zena when she was on the podcast about finding people to contribute to the podcast, uh, BAMA people to mm. contribute to the podcast. Because I'm like, I don't want this to be all all yeah. podcast. And and it's the same with what you're saying as well. Like, I want people that have these different different tastes, but particularly because of their own kind of personal. Uh, experiences and how they brought those to archaeology and how it you know impacts on that because one of the things I often ask in the podcast is you know how did you come to the subject mm-hmm. and I'm very interested about how our lives outside of archaeology inform our approaches to it and kind of vice versa as well mm-hmm. so you know what you get out of archaeology and how it affects you in your own life I mean have you actually had any of that at all like as it as it kind of rebounded in some respect you you know you've obviously research your avenues of research kind of followed you know your own personal experiences Mm -hmm. but then has your research then bounded back onto you and kind of affected you beyond simply your studies yeah that makes sense i think that's definitely true like especially when i was looking at the race stuff it really like um kept making me reevaluate how i see discrimination against people of different races um in the wider world and also um thinking about identity more because when I'd done psychology um obviously it's very people focused but in a clinical way but I feel like archaeology really looks at tries to look at people well you know some archaeologists try to look at people as people and what motivates them and what why they're doing why they're eating these seeds and why they're chipping these stones and then to an extent you know why are they doing this when they're in power and such um uh, especially coming to this and hearing coming to track and hearing um, lots of different talks about lots of different people from different backgrounds, it really makes you think about today. I think archaeology people, when I first came into it, I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to like do anything that really helps the modern world, but you know, it's a bit of fun and I'm interested in it. It's made me come out thinking arts and especially archaeology can really have an influence on how we do things today. Um, not only because like we were talking about um, small C conservatives like believing things more if we say they happened in the past, but also um, like it's allowing me to hear perspectives of different people and different people in the past that don't exist now. I can think of you know like ways, different ways culturally to approach things like um, like even most trivial thing like the foot lamps. I don't know if you're in the general. To a general session this morning someone was talking about foot oil lamps oil lamps in the shape of feet and that even just really made me think about feet and like it's just yeah archaeology has merely highlighted to me that there is a point to thinking about things other than just discovering new science and then moving on you know like actually thinking about the way we approach stuff and think about stuff is important for us to like continue being productive as people I think and keep um, doing more good things in science in uh, inventions in things we do yeah absolutely wow. that's a really good positive note to actually <laughs> to draw it to a close yeah, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean just before we round off you're, you're active on Twitter uh-huh, um, yeah. did you want to put your handle out there yeah my handle is uh, Miller J Power or one word on Twitter I also um, I don't know if you want me to plug things that oh, I oh please do. go for it plug, yeah plug um, I um, have written a book about uh, how to talk about and respect trans people in a social environment. Uh, so that's right on Twitter. That is uh, Pyrating, P-Y-R-I-T-I-N-G. Uh, I also just do like general comics, but the main thing I push through there is uh, that booklet on um, 
respecting trans people in social spaces and also um, I run a um, genderless uh, period subscription box which is not archaeologically linked at all but you know if you want me to send you renewable period products then I can. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Right. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah thanks for having yeah. me on. Oh that was fun.